Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we, what do we do? Talk about race politics. Right, right. <gasps> God, you're old. It only happens, we- <laughs> I'm only have to do this once every two weeks, okay? <laughs> so rude. Oh my God. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friend, Trisha in L.A. Hi! Hi, honey. I just want to jump into how eventful our lives have been lately. Very eventful. I just want you to share your story. <laughs> I think people need to know what's going on. I went to have a procedure at an un, I will an undisclosed hospital. So just to catch everyone up, she was getting a facelift. We <laughs> <laughs> won't say the hospital. So imagine it was called United Clowns of Los Angeles. <laughs> but I want to say I want to say a top ranked hospital. So <laughs> nothing bootleg is happening here. Okay, it's got letters and everything. Okay. Anyway, went to this hospital. Hospital proceeded to put me under, and then figure out that they hadn't prepped the room <laughs> with the equipment needed to do the surgery. Nine one one bootleg. Can I just? So just set the scene for anyone listening. You're totally prepped. They put you in the robe. The room's cold. They put you on a slab. They're like, breathe, count backwards from three. You go three. Then you wake up to someone saying, I'm so sorry. sorry. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I can laugh about it now. But yeah, that's exactly what happened. That is exactly what happened to me. Like, I'm so sorry. But we didn't get a chance to get the equipment we needed. And then we were worried that possibly when we found the equipment, it wouldn't be sterile. So oh, wow. uh, we just didn't do the procedure. I mean, <laughs> comedy of errors. And, and then the other thing. Now, listen, mistakes happen. I can, I can live with this mistake. Okay, I didn't die. So obviously, I'm going to live with it. By definition. By definition, right. But the part I can't really live with is just the utter lack of care shown afterwards. No, I mean, no one came. My my primary doctor for the um, surgery did not come to me, did not say hello to me, did not. Actually, as a matter of fact, when they paged her, guess what she did? She called in on the phone to talk to me. Hey, I'm over the way. It was like a StarTac, right? It was like a flip phone razor. Yeah, it was like one of these like Nokia, you know, those old Nokia tiny phones. I mean, the whole thing was so basic. I just, I thought to myself, and you all dare to call yourself a premier hospital? I mean, I... I mean, it's named after our worst president. So, I mean, that's not much... (laughs) You can guess which one it is. They're they're, they're like only a few from California. But anyway, so... um, I'm sorry. We're laughing now, but it was not funny. It It was was traumatizing. It was traumatizing. I mean, I have some distance from it of a few days. And so let's just say I was not in a state to be taping a podcast Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and offering witty repartee about the state of our union as it burns Mm -hmm. burns Mm -hmm. down around us. 
And and then to top it all off, I mean, things make me happy. There are very few things that make me happy, and tennis is one of them. And my ultimate favorite tennis player lost in a brutal five-setter um, a few days ago. So I'm feeling about it because tennis is my happy place, and I can't see his pretty tennis. So that makes me So remind me again. So he's out of it now for the rest of the year? No, no, no. It's just tournaments by tournaments. So he's just out of the one tournament that he loves. I really, you know, you know how I love you, right? I love, when I love people, I love the things that make them happy, right? So Wimbledon makes him very happy. It is his happy place. The fact that he lost here is 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 sort of sad. Um, and also because Wimbledon has all this tradition. It's so pretty. It's whatever. And the rest of the people that are left are basic on the men's side, at least. And so- Rude. I mean, and you know what, but by basic, you know who's left because you know who I have a pet hate for, but. I don't know why you're protecting these people's identity. She loves Roger, <laughs> she loves Roger Federer and she hates what that Spanish kid, what's that kid's name? I love that you know that about me. <laughs> I don't know why you're protecting their identities. Like, do you think that he listens, that Spanish kid? You think, what's his name? Uh, Rafa Nadal. Yeah, he's going to be upset. He'll be fine. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, listen. I mean, he doesn't have any hair, but what else is like? Okay. So I'm, I'm just kidding. No, anyway. not, I'm, not, I'm not really. Um, I'm still bitter about it. No. Oh? I'm just oh? bitter. I'm just bitter about oh it because, God. like, I don't like when someone takes my joy. <laughs> it's not even you. Anyway, anyway. moving moving on to moving me. On. That I, uh, was... Me, I have had family in town for the past week. My 17-year-old cousin came to visit me. What are 17-year-olds like now? They're young. They have a lot of energy. They're excited about college. If I go for my sample of one, she is going to a heavy science school and she is really a science nerd and she is very excited. We had a very nice couple of days. Went to museums. We went thrift shopping. She loved it. It was really lovely having young energy here. Um, Around my kids. Okay. Sorry. All right. I I have raised enough people's children over years. And uh, you know what? I want to say this. It just came right down to this because someone asked me about this yesterday. I was in an interview and the person doing the interview was like, you know, so what's your deal? Like, are you LGBT? Are you a parent? I said, uh, I'm gay, but I don't have any kids. And I was honest. I said, you know what? The fact of the matter is I've been raising other people's kids for a long time. And it got to a point where I just could afford nice stuff. And I had it in my house. And that was that. Nope. I didn't want to have kids around my nice stuff. End of story. <laughs> Why? Why? I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't want peanut butter in my Xbox One. I don't. I don't. I, I don't want jelly on the nice pieces of art that I have here. I'm just not interested. So I love children. I just don't need them in my home. If I had kids, it'd be great if I had like an apartment next door. Where they live. <laughs> I don't want them near my stuff. I just had a very pricey apartment renovation. It looks really great. Uh, no one under the age of eight of like 17 and a half is allowed in here ever again. <laughs> You're a mess. No, I'm not a mess. I'm telling the truth. I'm telling the truth. America wants to hear. Oh, oh boy. Um, I'm actually contemplating children, by the way, but oh, we'll Jesus. see. That's a whole nother podcast where we confront you on that. Uh, it's called uh, Outrageous, the Intervention. <laughs> I mean, it might all be for not, though. So, uh, oh, dark. I'm an old egg, so what am yeah. I going to do about it? We're old now. Yep. You know, you don't know how old you are until you hang out with a teenager. <laughs> 
don't sound so old though. <laughs> and they're like, you know, okay, Google, play this song by so and so. And I was like, was that English? I didn't understand any of the words you just said. Like, what group is that? Who is that? Like, oh, their song is number one. I said, number one, what? On what? Now you're listening to adult contemporary music. Remember we used to make fun of that? Holy shit. Let me tell you something. I got a pedicure and they had the adult contemporary station on. Honey, they're playing Man in the Mirror by Michael Jackson, Like a Prayer by Madonna. They're playing some smooth John Cicada. I was like, yes, like this is my jam. (laughs) You sound like you're in your 40s. (laughs) I am. Anyway, oh my God, it sneaks up on you. All right, so today on the podcast, um, it's going to be a little shorter one. So we just want to talk about the things, a couple of news stories that have been in our craw. And I want to start because I am fired up about this. Be fired up, good. So just, I'm going to try and do this as calmly as possible. Please do. So a few weeks ago, there was a boys soccer team in Thailand who, oh, yeah. through a confluence of events, got trapped in a cave underwater or something like that. I haven't really been following the story. Mm-hmm. Recently, they were saved and they were taken out of the cave. Everyone is rejoicing, including people here. I have seen people post with zero irony, zero, <laughs> zero irony on their Facebook feeds. Oh, thank God I was praying for this. I'm so glad they're reunited with their families. And I'm like, I'm looking in the comments for them to be like, asterisk, asterisk. <laughs> and there's nothing. And these are smart people who I'm friends with. And I have made myself a decision that I do not go on the internet and start conversations like this with people. But Trisha, <laughs> I, I just, I'm going to say this out loud in public. And I don't give a shit what anyone thinks about it. But here it is. I don't give a fuck about those 12 boys in Thailand. Not when, not when in my own city, they're holding children away from their parents. And in other states, they're holding them in cages. There it is. I said it. Have you been following this story? I actually have. Okay. I've been following it from different... Have you shed a tear for these children thousands of miles away from you? Listen, listen, you know what? I'm working really hard on this. Let me just, let me explain my position about it. I'm trying to find moments where we recognize our common humanity. And so, yes, I have been following it. Not because I'm not aware of the own, of our own family reunification cha- issues here and the separation of kids from their parents at the border. Not because of that, but really because in a weird way, I've just been paying attention to it, looking at how people have been able to, first of all, buy into the story, right? The way the story is unfolding. There's a sense of like the Thai drama. Story. Yeah, the Thai story. There's a sense of drama about it. There's um, there's all the elements that people really find resonant in a way the story is being told, right? Because they're they're victims, Nobody's questioning their victim status. I think there were a couple people who tried to sort of intervene immediately in when the whole, when the boys got trapped and started to blame the coach and mm-hmm. people immediately shut that down. And what the, the folks who shut that down were the parents. The parents were like, nope, without the coach, they wouldn't be surviving now. So mm-hmm. even if he was in error in taking them there, they were not going to stay there. 
first of all, that's great, right? Like, let's stop blaming people for a situation that they found themselves in. And fine, fine. Yeah. That was really, I thought that was really helpful. And also that's, that's how the Thai folks were talking about it. And that's how the media was trained to think about it. American media wanted to come in and blame somebody and was even proposing that they put, take the coach aside and like, you know, um, arrest them upon like, <laughs> everyone's like, get away from that American media. Um, so I thought that was really helpful. So I think what's useful about the Thai story, as you look around and think about the reactions it's getting from people is that it's like what, they're victims. Their status as victims is clear. That's why it's compelling for people, right? They don't have any questions of like, listen, whatever, however, I, you know. I know where you're, I know where you're you going. Know, I know what yeah, you're going to say. Yeah. But then the second thing about it for me that I found really amazing and sort of like heartening to watch, and that's the thing I'm, I'm, I'm going to take some measure of comfort from, is look at the ingenuity of every single person who just looked, who, who said, you know what, let me offer my skills. Let, like they, they took, they look at the problem and they're like, let me try to solve it. And then a whole, t- an international team, a global team yeah. is working on solving the, it. The British, the British, the Australian, everyone, everyone, I mean, major like divers with, where this is their specialty. And then of course the ultimate irony of it all is Elon Musk, which I think is, I think, Elon Musk and his own failure to provide anything useful to the rescue just speaks just speaks <laughs> to the value of the silicon the silicon valley type right because guess what he did he sent mini submarines right to help mm-hmm. move the kids and then guess what useless turned out to be useless for the situation well and if that's, sure I, if that doesn't sum up silicon valley and their their ability to problem solve I don't know what. It was like a teachable moment. Like I, that's why the Thai stories is, is important to me. Like I'm not, I, I look at it and I'm looking at it. Like, what would it be like if you all thought about the children at the border in the same way? If you said well, to yourself, these are all victims. How do we bring our expertise to bear on trying to resolve this instead of making it um, a, a, a sort of like stand and deliver moment, which is what this administration's doing with it. You know, I just like, that to me is what, what I'm connecting to with the Thai story. My, my issue isn't with the boys, isn't with the coach. Yeah. It's with our media, right? Because it's everything that you just said is that these boys are seen as a victim. You know, they're, they're a victim of circumstance. Mm-hmm. And I think, but I think that's what's really bothering me. It's just the way the story gets reported. Yep. Now, um, someone was showing me like uh, on their Facebook page, like someone had posted it and was like, oh, you know, really great that this happened. Then someone commented about what about the kids at the border. And then someone commented on that. Well, at these Thai kids, parents didn't break the law. Exactly. The law is like, and that's, that's and, the thing. And, that's always the thing that it comes down on. They're but breaking again, the though, law. But that's a media issue because a lot of the parents at the border when having their kids separated newsflash they didn't break the law either they came here yeah. because they you know they had received death threats or you know their country of origin like they it was dangerous for them to stay so they sought asylum which is not illegal not that that matters because you know slavery was legal so like when we start talking about countries deciding what's legal and what's illegal to do when it comes to saving your life or morals i'm just like ah. <laughs> uh, you know I, I don't put a lot of faith in that but the media has a serious failure in being able to communicate about the children in cages at the border. They, you know, there's been a lot of stories, a lot of political cartoons. There's a lot of, a lot of agitation around the issue, but the success 
of the Thai soccer team story staggered me because it worked. It worked on people that I knew who were following it. I think it's a human story, and I understand why people are like, "Oh, thank God they were saved." But these are same people who will then be like, "Well, you know, I don't want to get political in my own country." Like, it's not about being political. Like, there's humanity happening at our borders as well. Like, that's also a human story. Is but I think you know, and I think there was. I will say though that um, before the executive order, and I think this is really, um, I think this is one of the, I think an important element to sort of the protest prior to the executive order and people showing up and demonstrating. Mm-hmm. I think that in many ways the border crisis was being reported in a similar Thai fashion, but unlike. No, I think the general media were, um, so, the ones that I followed, they were finding individual parents who were telling their stories. You saw crying babies. You saw that whole image. And you saw the images of the children in the um, with those um, reflecting gear to keep them cool or warm or what have you. And you saw images of them on the floor. There were definitely those images. But I think the, I think part of the challenge is is the complexity of the solution, right? And so... I think one of the reasons why maybe even the border story has kind of fallen off people's radar again is because the executive order served as a kind of restoration of order in people's minds, right? That's what his executive order succeeded in doing was there was a sense of urgency and there were problems happening. Oh my God, why can't the president do something? Why can't he solve this problem, right? Mm-hmm. And then he's, and then he issues an executive order, which in some sense does, doesn't actually do much, but it created this illusion of a resolution, mm-hmm. right? And um, and so then the story recedes to the background. And I think you're right. There is a media failure in the sense that we didn't care. I don't know if the story, I don't know if they characterize the problems correctly and also therefore the solution correctly. Mm-hmm. Because I th- at the time, what people were pressing for was some response from the president. That's mm-hmm. all they wanted was a response. And they, I don't even know if they were like, should it be a, is it a good one? Is it a bad one? They didn't even care. They just wanted him to admit that this there was a crisis happening. And yeah. when he had the executive order and he did the whole thing where he signed something and flashed that thing around and he had his media moment, similar to sort of like the North Korea meeting, where now we're finding out all the repercussions of that meeting. And it's like, it was, it essentially is nothing. So mm-hmm. it's like, basically we know from what happened during the campaign that he and his um, surrogates are very, very good at using media moments to suggest that something is started or ended. Right. Mm-hmm. And when he had an executive order, I think I have to say that I think a sense of all the urgency left the room, all the urgency around people that I thought we're gathering and in and you know and sort of like coalescing around. Oh my God, we can't be these people. We can't be these people who keep kids in cages. The executive order came down, and then I think maybe mainstream media outlets stopped covering the story. But I do think that there were parallels with the Thai story, right? There are parallels. These kids are in danger. We can't be these people. Blah blah blah. Do something. The president issues an executive order. Something is going to be done now. It's all behind the scenes now. This is one moment where I can really see the weakness of our media. And what it can and what it can't do. Yep. And it, it and because every day that passes, media becomes faster and more ferocious, mm-hmm. right? And just more volatile and spinning very quickly. It's like in this moment with these two stories back to back, both concerning children, um, both with headlines talking about children being reunited with families, the failure for the American media to make the American crisis 
make it present for American people, it's astounding to me. It's, it's very similar to the efforts in the 50s and 60s amongst like white housewives about sending food to the poor children in Africa while they were championing, championing Jim Crow and against civil rights here. Like the, the failure to connect the issues of the day, it just, it just made me rock back on my heels and think, huh, like our journalistic efforts need an overhaul. Well, for sure. I mean, I think that's been the, I think that's been our sense for a long time is the way we tell, I mean, listen, I think the way we organize our information about what is going wrong or right in a scenario is really problematic because then mm-hmm. out of, out of how you organize or let's say identify problems, if you fail to identify the problem in the correct way, then the solution offered is um, is is also going to be problematic. Yeah, right? Yes, going to be incorrect. It's yeah. going to be incorrect because one of the things I think the media framed was we need a response from the president. That was the framing, and then you got a response from the president. Was it a good one? Was it a complete one? Was it um was it helpful? Was it meaningful? That was not. That was never up for. That was never a question. Question. Those questions weren't on the table. So what you end up with is you you end up with a sort of media circus, which is what you know what this administration really enjoys a sort of performance, <laughs> like you know yeah. what I mean? It's a performance, yeah, yeah. right? And so we didn't complicate the issue. I I mean I I'm saying we, but they the media did not complicate the issue enough. It didn't create enough um, sense of. First of all, they didn't even they didn't even explain the notion of illegal or an or legal status of the people there. They didn't explain the refugee process. I've never seen them do it in a really careful way. I mean, because yes, you're right. What always rears its head is, well, it's these people, it's these parents' fault. But you know, like, what did we, what did I say that happened with the Thai story? Right away, they said, let's not think about fault. Let's just think about the fact that this has happened and what are we going to do about it? I wonder if it would have gotten the same sort of energy has it been, um, you know, a man leading 12 refugee boys to safety and they got trapped in a cave. I mean, I do think that there's a, I do think the element of like, first of all, it's really discreet situation. You know, they're trapped in a cage. You, it's, it's, the the solution is fair. It's complicated, but it's also a simple story. Mm -hmm. Right. I think, um, I think the story around um, folks at the border are complicated and really uh well you know and this is this is the issue and i don't want to get too far off because i want to wrap this up but like i think the issue of simple versus complicated it's the media's job or it could could be it could be the media's job to simplify or complicate things and i think your construction of it right now about how oh the thing the stuff with the the kids at the border is complicated i mean it depends i can lay out a different fact pattern where all the facts are correct but it's really startlingly simple. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I do, but I mean, I think, um, but I think the questions that were raised around the border were never a ban- um, were never fully challenged by the media in a way that was going to be helpful. And I mean, I, when I say the general media, I just meant, I mean, like really the the main news stations of the day, because I oh, think yeah. you find folks on Twitter and people who have more direct contact mm-hmm. with with um, folks at the border, you can get a more direct um, interpretation of what's happening. And I mean, actually, I think one of the things, aside from the executive order, I think really the only thing that generated any kind of mo- push and movement was, um, I believe there was a deadline to reunify some of the families, I believe this past week. 
I know there was a judge that was pushing on that. And I think the, um, the order was to reunify children um, who were under five. And mm-hmm. as you know, as there's somebody that I follow on Twitter who really um, she's at some of the court proceedings and she's telling you. And when you know, it, there's so much to the story. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think this is also the problem is that we don't have the ability to consume a media diet. <laughs> That yeah. allows you to sort of pull those pieces apart, you know. And I mean, I was learning a lot from her, but you know, she was talking about okay, well, this can't happen because they can't find the mom here or that. But as, all of this aside, I mean, for me, one of the 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 the, the kind of important stories that are coming out that's coming out about the border is not so much about it's the ongoing reunification challenge, but the DNA issue because the administration has deliberately lost paperwork and paper trail for the kids, they are thinking about whether they can use DNA swabbing to find the parents. Oh, this is fresh hell now. Very fresh hell. That's a very fresh hell. Well, let's save that for another time, that nonsense that you just mentioned. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Jesus Christ. That seems fraught, right? Taking the DNA... Seems taking and cataloging DNA of immigrants or people seeking asylum. What could go wrong? Anyway, all right. So <laughs> let's dive in before that becomes a whole blown out topic. What about you? What's been on your mind lately? I have a question about your neck of the woods. Oh. Um, it seems to me that your governor's race, the race between Cynthia Nixon, possibly, and Mr. Cuomo. <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the primary challenge, yeah. The primary challenge. You know, when Cynthia Nixon first indicated that she was going to run for governor, I was I was dismissive because, you know, I, I hate a celebrity politician. That was the <laughs> way that was initially how I thought about her. But I have to say that over time, I added her to my Twitter feed and I find that she is quite refreshing. I think that her ability to deconstruct the electoral process mm-hmm. for regular folks is really helpful really helpful. Mm-hmm. Like I was looking at a video from her this morning and she was talking about, she, she identified three ways that voting was made more impossible in New York than it needed to be. It was made mm-hmm. more difficult in New York than it needed to be. And it was a quick, I'd say 45 second video. It looks like she sat, she stood against a wall. Someone <laughs> taped her on their cell phone mm-hmm. and put it up she's there. Made, she's made a couple like that. Yeah. And, but you know, but it's so informative. It's so informative and it's very direct, very concrete examples of the three mistakes that we do. You know, one of the things is um, one of the things that she points out is that you if you want to vote in a primary, you have to make your primary designation a full year out. She's Mm -hmm. like, why can't you just do that? Why can't you do that at any point in time? Why does it have to be a full year out? What's that process Mm -hmm. all about? And then, you know, automatic voter registration. You know, why can't we do that? And then also the question of early voting. You know? Okay. Yeah, she's got a lot of great issues. So you know, what's your yeah, question? So, so my question is, um, I want to revisit an earlier question that we had, which is um, around the celebritization of politics. You know, there was a time when we were wondering, oh, is that's my question. Yeah. 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 But I want to revisit it in light of sort of me looking at Cynthia Nixon and really thinking that she's offering something new, but actually a better new. Right. Okay. Okay. (laughs) A better new. Like a better new. Like, listen, you know, you could say you could you could make the case that um, 
inexperience and all of those kinds of things um, is, is part of the reason why I wouldn't necessarily want a celebrity to enter this fray, right? But what if someone is entering the fray and, and introducing something new and valuable? Does that change um, your, old, your, your older position on um, whether celebrities should be even allowed to enter this space? Cynthia Nixon dropped into the governor's race with like, I mean, with a medium-sized splash, right? Because one, it's like, oh my gosh, Miranda is running for governor. <laughs> Sex in the city style. Yeah, and once, you know, once all the memes and all the fun jokes cleared out, what was left was a woman who had clearly done her homework mm-hmm. and had very left, very progressive issues mm-hmm. for New York City and New York State. At first, I dismissed her because for the reason that you said on a previous podcast, when celebrities run for elected office, my stance is usually like, listen, yes, you are very rich. Yes, you are in rooms with people who are decision makers. Yes, you feel like you could also be a decision maker because that feels easy um, because of your extraordinary access and people's extraordinary deference to you. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you can rule. That doesn't necessarily mean that rules, the wrong word for America, at least it used to be. It doesn't mean that you can represent people. That's a very different job. People spend their lives and careers understanding how representative government works, understanding how you know bills become laws, like how to make the correct connections to get things done. Now, you could be very cynical about that whole process, and I understand that because I'm also very cynical about that process, but that doesn't take away from the fact that that is actually a process. That's the process that exists. When the smoke cleared and there was all these great progressive ideas, you know, my next question was, oh, can you actually do any of this for all the reasons I just said? Like, do you have the experience? And that's still an open question for Cynthia Nixon. But to answer you directly, does she change my position about whether celebrities can hold elected office? Listen, I think that if you are committed and you've done your homework and you're willing to really dedicate your life to this kind of public service, And if you really think you can move the needle and get America or some part of it somewhere else, I mean, then go for it. I think my initial concern with celebrity politicians is it's the golden calf thing. It was, it's what I see, not necessarily from the celebrities themselves, but from the public. Like when Oprah had that really great speech at, was it the Oscars or the Emmys? Golden Globes. The Golden Globes, when she had that really great speech at the Golden Globes, people were like, Oprah for president. That's the kind of golden calfism that bothers me because politics is serious business. Cynthia Nixon has impressed me because she has taken this very seriously. And I also, I don't get on Twitter often, but I follow her on Twitter. Basically, her and Cher are the two people I follow. <laughs> if you're not following Cher on Twitter, uh, you should. Cher is an insane old woman. Uh, I love it. I will, I will cool, do that. <laughs> as cool as she is, like in in movies and music, follow her on Twitter, and she is just your your great grandma, tweeting things like, "Can anyone see me?" Like she's just. <laughs> anyway, I digress. So, so yeah. So the short answer to your question is that I have rethought it. Like I. I, I don't think celebrities can be politicians by dint of their celebrity, but I think if you are willing to actually dedicate your life to it and do the homework, then yes. 
You know, I, I feel like Arnold Schwarzenegger did that, but you would have a better opinion about that than me because he was your governor. But I, I mean, I, yeah. I, you know, there was initial, I think at the time when we first talked about it, I was worried because the, the, I thought the bar for entry was going to be too high then, right? This level of like awareness that you would have to have as a celebrity that then necessarily means that you are already ahead of your competitor who mm-hmm. might not be that well-known, but maybe more experienced, right? That's That was sort of the challenge. But at the same time, I'm also thinking about it. Um, I'm also thinking about the fact that there are so many women who are running political campaigns because they looked around and are like, shit, Y'all ain't mm-hmm. doing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and there's this and you never and 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 there's an element of that, you know, taking out the celebrity of just a, a sort of ordinary citizen looking mm. around and saying, you know what, I could do this better. Let me dedicate myself. Let me learn as much as I can. And for us to translate that into real wins and for them to translate that into real wins, I think that's really powerful. And I think it's I agree. Um, you know, and so I, I think I had to sort of pull back a little bit about the celebrity piece. I'm always, I'm still going to have a little bit of a side eye, but the effort that's being put forth, I think, is really compelling. And so I can't dismiss it. And you know, and it's so funny because I think our 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 old podcast buddy really had, I think, had had open questions about whether career politicians were was a worthy thing. Mm-hmm. And I think. Without his, without him being here, I think the needle has shifted for me. I Interesting. Mean, I, I wonder. <laughs> I wonder. Uh, I wonder at this notion of a career politician in the current climate that we have, and whether, in some sense, you're just not. It doesn't trap you in a system that um, doesn't allow real movement and real shift and real change. Okay, uh, this is a whole topic, but I just want to just jump in and mm-hmm. just jab the dagger in the heart of what you're saying. Sure. Okay. I know where you're going with that. And the idea that career politicians is an imperfect and corrupt system. And the longer you stay in it, the more imperfect and corrupt you're going to be. However, if you think about your role as a career politician differently, Mm -hmm. if you really see yourself as someone who's going to go in there and represent people and really fight against that system, Mm -hmm. sort of like what the tea party is supposed to be, but not Mm -hmm. what actually happened in practice. Mm -hmm because they weren't really about representing anyone as much as just advancing them and their buddies. If someone actually did that, then career politicianism would make sense, you know, but that's not what we have. People get in there and they get very settled and they feel like their hands are tied. But if you are willing to risk it, if you are willing to put your neck out there to help the people that you pledged to serve and to help, then that's it. Like we could think about, career politicians, the way that we think about career firemen or career policemen, or those other people who are out there risking their lives. But instead, we think about politicians as a very cushy job that once you get into it, you get a really nice salary, you get a really nice office. And that is because of the trappings that we put on it. And not for nothing, those are the trappings that the system supports because it keeps them in check. Now, we we could do something entirely different with representative government, but we don't. But we don't. Yes, but we don't. So that's, so that's what I'm saying. Like, I am for career politicians, people who are like, I have a vision for what this country, for what this state, for what this subdivision, I have a, a vision for what could happen. And I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to fight for it. But that's not what we end up with. No. 
And I also think, I mean, you know, and I, I'm just, just to roll, wrap up this, because I think it is still related to the celebrity question, this notion of what is the skill set, what is the knowledge base that you have to have. Mm-hmm. I think similar to a reporter, which by the way, this came up in my graduate program. Somebody wanted to know if it would make sense for you to actually um, create legitimate structures for a reporter, you know, for, you know, so that it's it, in some sense that it would be a closed profession. And one of the things that my instructor said was, no, the idea of the media or reporters as a kind of fourth branch of government that pushes back on um, structures is too valuable to pin it on um, sort of this notion that this, this kind of like closed world where only some people get to enter, you know? Um, So I just, I thought that was a really interesting interpretation of why you're not going to get a stamp that says you are the best reporter in the room. No, your job (laughs) as a reporter is really to critique, to ask questions, to challenge, to push back. And if you are doing that in a thoughtful and mindful way, you have the right to call yourself a reporter. And if you've Mm. written for a legitimate newspaper, all of those kinds of things, you know, you can get all those tags, but we're not going to professionalize the field and allow and, and, and therefore sort of gatekeep. Right. And I think in some ways, the same, um, the same thing can be said for politics and politicians, right? You can talk about a sort of ready bucket of knowledge that you should have, but that's acquirable. There's Mm -hmm. no special, you know what I mean? That that's acquirable as Cynthia Nixon is showing on some level. I think the thing that we always assume is always happening in the room at these, at this very high level are the relationship negotiations, right? Do you really understand how you're going to separate the wheat from the chaff? Is that what it is? How you, how you negotiate in the room. That's what, that's the perception. I think why people say we can't have a newbie in the room because they don't understand all the compromises that have already been made. You know, They don't understand how things actually work on um, not the actual practical knowledge. And so I think if we pull those pieces apart a little bit, I think that it actually opens up the room for more people to enter political life than, um, than we previously thought, especially at the very local level, where I don't think it has, it, 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 I don't think it needs to be as expensive as it, as it is on sort of like mainstream major campaigns, right? Mm-hmm. Where you have to have a ton of money to enter. <laughs> well, it's going to be interesting to see. I uh, I didn't think Nixon had a chance, but who knows? Who knows? Oh, we used up all of our time. We were going to talk about more, but we have to move directly into media recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced. You think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. So I'm going to, what do you have? Do you have anything? Yeah, I've seen it twice and I really like it. I went out to see the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? I've seen it twice. No joke. There is always, always shuddering tears in the audience. It feels like people are at a therapy session or at least some sort of um, emotional release space. What I really appreciate about it, and I think listeners will understand why I appreciate this, because you guys all understand that media is a sort of, um, is an interest of both Chris and of myself, is that he really, Mr. Rogers really thought that the space between he and his viewer was sacred. He really did. And he said he, when he did his um, work um, behind the screens, he always thought about an individual on the other side. 
and that he thought that that communication space was really important and needed to be nurtured and taken care of. So when you think about that, what you create in media, if that is your conceptualization, is a wholly different animal. And so there's a part in the documentary, which I'll just say, where this woman said, take everything that is not supposed to work on TV and put it on TV. And that's Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. (laughs) So he was the antithesis of what became the model of TV, simply because of that belief that there's a sacred space between you and your viewer. And so just imagine extrapolating that to your own interpersonal relationships. And if you say to yourself, there's a sacred space between me and everyone I encounter and how you would sort of conduct yourself in that interaction, it's really powerful. So I I really, I I appreciated it. It's it's interesting to watch because you can, you look at it in contrast to our current media environment, but then you also look at it at the time that he was constructing it and thinking to yourself, what would it be like if he had had more people buy into this idea and then replicated that would we because there's nothing like it now there's nothing that's analogous to what he tried to do I well don't tv is so landscape. tv is so different but it you know tv was new for him at the time so there could have been like you could have said there could have been a school of mr rogers thought mm-hmm. and 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 you could sort of see you could see a branch of that maybe represented but I really think that um, people didn't get the ideas that he was um, that he was trying to get across so mm-hmm. much so that you look at the current media landscape. And I don't know if you can find evidence of what he believed was true, which is that sacred space. I think it's an interesting documentary. I think he's an interesting individual, but I think it's also a, a, a really keen look at our current media culture without actually having to say it. It's really fascinating. I think it's um, he tackled so many disparate issues. And um, in, a, in such a clever way. So I highly recommend it. Um, I think it's out in the theaters. I think you should always go out and support documentaries because, you know, um, they're another form of storytelling and, you know, they don't always make a ton of money. So if you can find it in your local theater, do it. And when it comes to Netflix or wherever it is, I really recommend it. It's going to blow the hell up. Yeah. I think so. I think it's going right. to work much I'll better. I'll definitely see it. I will definitely see it. I am going to recommend something that's out of character for me, uh, but it is an article I read. It was in. New York Magazine called Will Trump Be Meeting with His Counterpart or His Handler by Jonathan Chait. It is an article that purports to conclude that (laughs) Donald Trump has been a Russian deep agent since the late 80s. Now, while that sounds like science fiction or science fiction, while it sounds like, you know, fantastical history, and while it sounds sensational when I say it, him laying out the details of the interaction not just with Trump, with Moscow and Russian agents over the past 30 years, but the people who have been central to his campaign over the past five years and the things that the, their connections with the Russians, I have to say it was really compelling. You know, because situations like this, I feel like you, you pick the things that support your thesis and you ignore everything else, sure. especially when you write an article like this. Obviously, you want to come, you have a thesis and you want to match it. And I mean, I certainly, we mentioned our friend of the podcast earlier, you know, I've certainly read things about him in the New York Times and Washington Post that I know are false, you Mm -hmm. know, but they support a narrative that the author is trying to create. So, you know, I'm I'm really cynical about it. And I didn't check primary sources. All I'm going to say is that it is a very interesting read. Where is it from again? It's the New New York Magazine. Okay. And it's a very interesting read 
because it harkens back to what I was talking earlier with the Thai boys, is that journalism can fail. And when it does fail, there can be severe consequences for it. And if only if even 50% of the connections that this article describes are true, then there is a real true crisis in America, and we are not paying enough attention to it. Russia has been attempting to topple America since the 50s. Like they've been really vocal even before that, you know, Lenin, Khrushchev, you know, they gave speeches where they were like, you know, America will be destroyed and we will do it and they will just fall apart in our hands. It's strangely a coincidence that Russia factors so much into our current drama when this is exactly where they wanted to be, have aimed to be, and strategized to be for decades. Like that can't be a coincidence. So I recommend checking it out. And I know it sounds like some tinfoil hat bullshit, but <laughs> check, you know, just pick your favorite three facts and just track down the primary sources and look it up, uh, which is usually what I do with articles like this. Just any three facts, just track down the sources. It's, it's interesting and, and uh, concerning, to say the least. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's it. We wanted to hit more news stories, but I was, uh, we were both passionate about those Thai boys. You know, I want to <laughs> say, I said earlier, I don't give a fuck about them. That is only partially true. Yes. Um, I'm glad men. that those 12 individual humans are safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am aware that you can care about more than one thing at one yeah. time. Sure. However, my concern uh, when I brought that up was that there were a lot of people in my timeline timeline who were not concerned about more than one thing at one time. They were mm-hmm. concerned with a thing that was glossy and seemed like it was a lifetime drama, and they were not concerned with the thing that's happening in their backyard in their name. So that is why that whole thing upsets me. I'm glad those boys are with their family. I only wish that so many other thousands of children right now could be reunited with theirs. On that note, damn it. um, I'm out of here, honey. All right. All right. Go on with your damn day. And I will will talk to you soon. And everyone listening, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for checking in, all.